For many city slickers, there's no better way to spend a vacation than getting reacquainted with Mother Nature. And where better to do that than in my own backyard, the American West. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Recently, I enjoyed exploring a wild river with my family in the backcountry of Idaho. Today, on Travel with Rick Steves, I'll be talking with Peter Grubb about river rafting. Peter runs a wilderness expedition company that leads rafting adventures on the Snake and Salmon Rivers. And later, Julian Smith is back to take us to another one of our country's wilderness recreation areas, Indian Country, in the Four Corners area of the desert southwest. Plus, we're taking your calls about trips to Europe and reading an essay from one of our listeners who thinks you'd enjoy her neighborhood in Montreal. There's a lot of adventure ahead, and you're invited as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. This week, instead of traveling to some exotic overseas destination, let's look for inspiration a little closer to home. Coming up, we'll learn about backcountry river rafting from a man who runs an Idaho wilderness expedition company. And later in this hour, we'll dry out with a trip to the Four Corners in Indian Country in the desert southwest. We'll find out just why this area attracts so many visitors from all around the world. But first, let's check in with your travel questions and ideas at 877-333-RICK. Give us a call. It's 877-333-7425. Or send us an email at radio at ricksteves.com. We got Todd on the line from Indianapolis. Hi, Todd. Hi, Rick. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? My wife and I would like to go to Italy, and we're thinking about going in September or October, actually. So my first question is, what would you prefer those two months? The second part of the question would be, though, if you had to prioritize, and we only have 10 days, let's say, to go, what would be the most important things to see and then list them in least importance? And this is your first trip in Italy? Yes. You know, I would just do the famous things that everybody wants to see. you got 10 days. Italy is, it seems like it's everybody's favorite country, and I think for good reason. In Europe, it's just... It, it offers what you're dreaming about in Europe. People, food, chaos, art, uh, you know, history. Uh, it's just, it doesn't disappoint. And I would um, remind you the uh, efficiencies of going open jaws. And I think I would start in Venice and I'd go down to Rome. And uh, I'd fly into Venice. Venice is a very cute little airport and uh, you're likely going to fly from America over to Frankfurt or Paris or something like that. And then you have a connecting flight. And uh, it's just like using a hub in the United States. You'd connect uh, from a big city to a smaller town. And it's no inefficiency or no great uh, economic uh, penalty to pay to fly into Venice. And then you would take the train for three hours to Florence and three hours to Rome. And from Florence, you might side trip to the uh, hill towns of Tuscany or Siena or something like that. From Rome, you, if you wanted an adventure, you could take a side trip for two and a half or three hours south to Naples. Uh, this is no uh, off-the-beaten-path approach to Italy. This is just the best of Italy in 10 days. And Italy is hot, and Italy is crowded, and I would do it as late in the season as you could. October would be great. Um, cloudy weather and a little drizzle is, not, is a kind of a blessing in Italy compared to the uh, brutal sunshine that you would endure in the summer. How do you feel about Lake Como? I love Lake Como. Of all the lakes in the north, Lake Como is my favorite. And if you wanted to do that in your trip, uh, you would fly into Milano. And from Milano, you would take the train directly up to Varena, one hour north of Milano. It's a wonderful way to get over jet lag to stay in the little town of Varena, across from the famous uh, resort town of Bellagio. Uh, conveniently, uh, Varena is uh, just an hour commute to the north of Milano. So from the airport in Milan, you take the shuttle right into the train station, and then every hour there's a train uh, going from there up to Varena. Then you get over jet lag in a little traffic-free village basically on the lake. Uh, you um, you know dart around the lake on these little uh, ferry boats, and, uh, and after a couple of days you carry on working your way down to Rome. Then you could take your uh, train to Venice as well. You could, yeah. And you just got to be careful of... Uh, trying to do too much. But, you know, if you had 10 days, you know, it's reasonable to have uh, your first uh, couple of days in uh, Lake Como area with a possible side trip to Milan, the big city. Remember, they say for every church in Rome, there's a bank in Milan. Milan really is uh, a key ingredient to Italy's uh, economic success as of late. I mean, just recently, Italy surpassed England in per capita income, and it's not because of Venice or San Gimignano or Sicily. It's because of powerhouse cities in the north like Milano. 
So you can go to Milan and check out modern, successful, trendy, uh, expensive Italy. Head over to Venice, and um, and then you're three hours to Florence and three hours to Rome, assuming you want to hit the biggies. Great. Thanks for your call, Todd. Bye. Cindy in San Diego, thanks for your call. Uh, yes, hi. Uh, my question is, I took my 83-year-old mother with a cane to Venice and Florence, just my mother and I, and it was very difficult traveling with an elderly person. What month were you there? Uh, in May. Okay. How was the heat in May for her? It was it was okay. So not, that wasn't a big bad. issue. It was more, she can't, particularly in Venice, she walked with a cane, so she can't go upstairs. She, a lot of the um, museums didn't have, well, Florence was okay, like the Uffizi Gallery. They would, we would go around in the back and then go up in the handicap area and then use your book and, and go to the, through the self-guided tour. But in Venice, you know, they don't have taxis, and so there was no, they wouldn't let her sit unless she would actually buy coffee. Yeah, Venice is very tough for somebody who doesn't walk well, who yes. wants to get around, unless they're loaded and you just want to hire a taxi, but those water taxis are very expensive. Exactly, and so we would use the Vepretos, and right. so... Well, that's a good idea, actually. You can give yourself a, you know, you get on a Vepretto, it costs you five bucks for, it's like a bus ride, but you can yes. sit on that thing and go all the way around the island, you could go all the way out into the lagoon and back, and, and that would be kind of a, a joy ride, wouldn't it? It it was, except for, again, a person with a cane, it was... Um, tough to get on and off? Yes, tough right. to get on. And then once we were on, it was very wobbly. And then it was... In Florence, we would hop in a cab, but in in Venice, how do you... If you have to go way over to a Valprado, how do you walk over there? You don't. I mean, you walk. It's hard, yeah. And there's, exactly. And there's stairs and everything. Venice is just not built for uh, 80-year-old uh, right. uh, mothers <laughs> with canes. You know, that's just the problem. In Europe... A lot of times, somebody that age, um, they just stay upstairs. You know, it's it's yeah. it's kind of sad, but it's just there's not elevators, and and uh, they can't get up and down. I've got friends in Europe with aging parents, and and it's tough unless they've got the money to get them into a, a more comfortable place. We've written a guidebook uh, called Easy Access Europe for people who don't walk well, but oh. we've had to be uh, realistic in how much scope we can cover and cover well because it's a tiny market, and the book uh, won't will, will never sell well, even if it's a, a big hit in that market. Okay. So we only cover. London, Paris, um, Amsterdam, and the Rhine River. Okay. I think we cover Belgium also. So okay. that's just that core of, of, of Europe. But you took your mother to Florence? Yes. I, I've got a friend who's a guide there, and she's got a, a, a minibus with a license to drive everywhere in the town, whether it's pedestrian only or not. And she says it's very popular with older travelers who just want to see Florence, but they can't handle all the long walking. So you might have yeah. to uh, splurge for somebody with a car with a access uh, license uh, plate to get them into these uh, otherwise private areas. Now, see, I didn't think of that. I would, that would have been a great idea because we did a tour on the hop-on, hop-off bus, the 24-hour thing. Right. And it was still very difficult because they'd give you just a few minutes, okay, everyone look, and, right. and then you know she'd barely get off the bus right. and they'd come ro- running back on the bus and yeah. she didn't even get off. Well, for a couple hundred bucks, you would have this person I'm thinking about drive to your hotel no matter where it is and be waiting there, pick you up, and uh, you'd put grandma on the front seat and uh, roll down the window, and uh, you'd have a rolling, slow-motion tour of the town. I think that is a great idea. And, uh, and she also didn't want to go on the big bus tour. Yeah. So this is a way. And the other thing is, like, we would, you know, since we had your self-guided tour books, um, we would, since we would go to the back of the hotel or the museum and go through the handicapped, we'd come out on some weird floor, and then we'd look at your self-guided tour and say, huh, now where does this start? Right. Because you were starting it from the yeah. regular entrance. Well, that's, that's always a problem. Is, and every year they, they have these hyperactive curators that change the entries and so on. So you're just going to have to roll with those punches. Okay. Well, again, we just love your books and keep up with the humor. We think you're great. Oh, Cindy, well, thank you. And uh, best wishes with your travels from all the generations there, taking your mom, taking your kids, uh, <laughs> and uh, introducing them to the wonders of Europe. Okay. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for your call. Okay. Bye. Bye. Barbara from Belmont, California, emailed us, and Barbara asks about uh, flying to Europe. She asks, is it less expensive to fly from the States into one European city, travel by train to another, and then fly back to the States from a different city? Or is it cheaper to fly in and out of the same European city? Well, that's a very basic concept among travel agents, and it's called open jaw. And I think it's very, very important to think cleverly, Barbara, about flying into one city and out of another city. There's no financial penalty at all. You're simply paying half the round-trip fare from here to there and half the round-trip fare from the other city back to your American home base. 
uh, and it's super efficient. I think it's been 10 years since I flew in and out of the same city. Think cleverly about flying open jaw. Talk to your travel agent about it. Fly into one city, out of another, and that saves you lots of time and money because you can avoid the needless return to your starting point. We have Becky on the line in Spokane. Hi, Becky. Hi, Rick. Thanks for waiting, and thanks for your call. Yes, hi. I need some advice. Um, We want to get to Eastern Europe, and we want to do your tour of Eastern Europe. And um, I have a really um, major dietary dietary restriction, and I have to be fructose-free. And that means no fruits and hardly any vegetables and no high fructose corn syrup, no garlic, no onion, no tomatoes. And so I'm going to probably have to pack a lot of my own foods, and I'm wondering how easy will that be to, to do well, Eastern Europe. I don't think you need to pack your own food. Let's think of it as sort of a, a nice challenge that's going to turn into a plus. Okay, uh, good. Uh, first, <laughs> for, yeah. first of all, Eastern Europe is probably the best place not to be able to eat vegetables and fruit because I don't think... I mean, historically, they haven't had a lot of fruits anyways uh, in their cuisine. And, you know, that would have been a challenge a little while ago when there weren't health restaurants and when there weren't uh, uh, people speaking English and so on. But um, I'm just uh, paging through my uh, Prague book here, and it says, here's a place in Prague that's really good, a country life vegetarian restaurant, Uh, bright, easy, non-smoking cafeteria Mm -hmm. with a well-displayed buffet of salads and veggie hot dishes. It's serious about vegetarianism, only plant-based, unprocessed, unrefined food. Ah. Well, maybe that's not going to serve it for you, but the point is you would have never seen that uh, 10 years ago. And now all over Eastern Europe, you do have um, d- uh, restaurants that take their cooking seriously, that cater to people with uh, health concerns and dietary concerns. What you want to do is make a point when you get into each country to have your dietary concerns written out on a 3 by 5 card in okay. very clear local language. And they'll do that for you at the hotel. And remember, people. a lot of people who don't have the dietary concern don't take it very seriously. So they think, I can't eat. Uh, peanuts might mean I don't like peanuts or I don't want a lot of peanuts. Or yeah. if there's peanuts, I hope they don't taste very much. But you can, you know, you might need to make it really clear. If there's peanuts, I die, you know. Yeah. And, and then um, you put that on that card. And then you show it at the restaurant. And especially a restaurant that, that caters to people with health concerns or is tuned into the values of uh, healthy eating. You should be fine. Also, know how you can fend for yourself in the markets as you go. Um, there's supermarkets, there's colorful open-air markets, there's health food markets, there's all sorts of shops where people in your dietary boat would go to. And let that be part of the um, experience. You're going to be functioning as a temporary local person with those dietary considerations in Poland and Czech Republic and Hungary or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but you want to have the language skills, and that means you need to have a phrase book, buy a local dictionary. You can get those for peanuts, you know, over there, and um, let local people help you out and uh, plan on uh, doing a little cooking and going into the markets yourself, and uh, there's a creative solution there. That's fantastic. Um, You're lucky you're going now instead of 10 years ago, that's for sure. Okay, great. Good luck on your trip. Yes, thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye. Two centuries ago, Lewis and Clark blazed a trail westward through the Rocky Mountains and inland rivers of our great and unsettled land. Today, These same mountains and rivers, no longer obstacles, are ideal getaways from our crowded urban homes. Coming up, we'll get a lesson in backcountry river rafting from a man who leads adventures on the Snake and Salmon Rivers in Idaho. River rafting guru Peter Grubb is up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
This immense river waters one of the fairest portions of the globe. Nor do I believe that there is in the universe a similar extent of country. As we passed on, it seemed as if those scenes of visionary enchantment would never have an end. Meriwether Lewis. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. And now I want to take a break from all those cathedrals and museums and big noisy cities. I want to go into the mountains, and I want to get on a river raft and and get a little white water. We're going to talk about white water rafting. A lot of people ask me, what do you do when you're on vacation? And for a break from all of the high culture of European travel, I really love to go river rafting. And um, I've been two times with a company called River Odysseys West. And I've got the founder of River Odysseys West with us today. And we're going to talk about white water rafting. Peter Grubb is here. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Rick. Nice to see you again. Good good to be here. Good to see you. You're dressed a little differently than the last time I saw you on the river. <laughs> Probably a little more pale also. <laughs> yes, isn't that funny? When you're, when you're on the road, you uh, really become like one with the elements. And now we're in our offices. Boy, when I, when I think about the, the river rafting experience I had, it was so cool because you got small group of people, a very impressive uh, ratio of guides to, um, you know, participants. Uh, you got the big raft, you got the little rafts, you got your rubber duckies for the adventurous types that can get out there and paddle single. But what I got was really a connection with nature. I mean, I remember getting up at night and walking down to the river and seeing the constellations reflected into the quiet parts of the river. I remember just getting away from the group and doing some fishing, something I, I just never do. Standing there, and it was mesmerizing, just for an hour before dinner, casting that line. Um, I remember getting woken up by your guides with coffee in the tent, and it's time to get up, and then all of a sudden there's a hot mug of coffee coming in, and Anne and I go, this is the life. Uh, amazingly good food on the river. It's just quite an exciting experience. What got, What inspired you to get into river rafting and, and start your company 25 years ago? Well, it all started when I was in college looking for a summer job, and I had been a lifeguard and thought that a counseling would be great, and um, stumbled across in that search a uh, company in West Virginia looking for whitewater rafting guides. And so I was hired there. I worked a summer doing one-day trips. I did 111 one-day trips in West Virginia. And I loved the river. I loved the magic of the river, the power of the rapids, the instant gratification was very different than college. You got through a rapid, you were either successful or you weren't, and uh, you knew that right away. Immediate feedback chain. Well, this is one of the most thrilling things to me. You're, you're in the middle of nowhere. You're two or three days away from your where, wherever you uh, dropped in, and then the guides are kind of hyping this big, big rapid coming up. What 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 number would it be? I don't know. It's that you have these different numbers. Well, usually, if we're getting out of the boats to look at a rapid, it's at least a class four. Okay, take take us up. Take us up to the, like, we're, we're, we're on a river rafting trip. We've got the biggest one of the whole tour coming up. Take us up and, and talk us through how we're going to look at these um, challenges. Well, well, we'll look at the rapid, and what we'll be looking for is uh, what we call the downstream V. We're going to be looking for that smooth section of water where the river has, has carved out the cleanest path. It's moved the rocks out of the way. And uh, what's always tricky about scouting is that you're usually standing above the river, and sometimes at some distance from the rapid. So oftentimes people will look at the rapid and say, oh, well, that looks like a piece of cake. It's really not that big. But once you get down right by the river's edge, all of a sudden those waves that you were 50 feet above and now you're looking 20 feet up uh, look very different and, and, and more threatening. So you take your novices up to this viewpoint and you try to tell them the way the water's going. You try to point out the pitfalls. Right. And, and, and it's also just creating a a sense of respect for the river, to not underestimate that power. And, and uh, we don't scout for show. It isn't just the drama of the scout. We, we scout because we need to, because we think it's the right thing to do to improve our chances of getting through successfully. <laughs> and you want to be at the end of the tour with the same number of uh, people that you started with. It's always good for business. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I would imagine there's a lot of competition out there, and uh, I, I imagine structurally these river trips, five-day river trip, are pretty much the same. They have a big boat, little boats, duckies. Is that how it is? Well, there's some difference in terms of even the basic structure of a trip. Um, some companies like our own will run a big cargo boat that uh, we use to take the camp gear ahead of the group and get camp set up. Which I thought was beautiful, by the way. All the hard work, these guys, they load down the tents and they're gone yeah. before we hit the water. Yeah, most people like that. There are companies, however, that have a different philosophy that keep the group together. Everybody gets to camp, unloads the boats together, sets up camp together. 
So either experience is great. It just depends on, on one's preference. You got Usually you have one big boat for the people that don't want the close to the rapids adventure. Right, right. That's what we call an oar boat where a guide is rowing. And then we have um, the next size smaller boat is a paddle raft where everybody's paddling and participating. So that's a little bit more exciting, a little more chance of falling out because you're not hanging on to anything. You're actually paddling. And uh, the third, which you refer to as the duckies, are the inflatable kayaks for the people that really want a one-on-one experience. And then you got your ammo kits. Right. There's a, there's a, a waterproof bag to put your overnight gear in, sleeping bag, etc. We'll have a small can, if it, uh, ammo can, if people have cameras they want to keep protected. And these are actually Army surplus ammunition kits. Is that right? That's right. Wow. And they're watertight, and you stack them up, and that way you've got your sunglasses, your iPod, whatever you want. Anything. Right. Exactly. They have iPods now in the river. Do people take those? People do, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can take your music with you. Whoa. You, you guys do mostly Idaho rivers. Uh, that's the, the primary thing. Uh, there's a variety of rivers. I mean, you, you get a, anybody who's shopping around for a river um, trip, they'll look at the different companies, and, and they'll do several rivers. And how do you assess which river's best for you? Well, I think the questions a person wants to ask is, um, first of all, what time of year they're available to go. Assuming you're completely flexible and can go whenever you want, then the next question would be, uh, what uh, difficulty of whitewater are you looking for? Are you looking for an introductory trip, a very mild trip? Are you looking for something intermediate that's suitable for a wide range of abilities but still going to have some excitement? Or do you have experience and are you looking for a real adrenaline-thumping heart-pounding, paddle-bashing kind of trip. Paddle-bashing kind of trip, <laughs> wow. And you got a lot of uh, city folks like me that uh, really are new on the river, and we want some white water, but we don't want to kill ourselves. And that's where the services of a guide come in, presumably, is what we're doing is helping people screen. And when you call us or any rafting company, hopefully they're going to ask you the questions of uh, what kind of trip are you looking for. And uh, scenery is another thing. Every river's got a little different uh, scenery flavor and look to it. So that's another thing. It's also good to ask what sort of group is going on the trip. Yeah, because sure... you took your family tour, and that was great for kids. Right. It, has that been popular for you? It has been very popular. All right. We got um, uh, Jane on the line in Fort Worth, Texas, and it uh, looks like she's been doing some rafting. Tell us about your river rafting experience. Well, last summer, um, a couple of two other couples – Two other couples plus myself um, decided to do a river rafting trip. Just, you know, there's so many out there, you don't know what to choose from. So we just Googled um, whitewater rafting Idaho, and we came up with the, the outfitters that we went, that we used. And um, it was, I hadn't, I hadn't gone river rafting, God, for years. But what was so unique about this and what was so much fun was the camping out um, part of it. And it's it's really sort of like um, upscale camping, so to speak, because you do absolutely nothing. The the guides set up camp for you. They do all this cooking, and the cooking is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you just would not believe it. And um, we liked it so much, uh, and we also loved the uh, our guides and the outfitters that we used. They had mentioned, we did, um, last year we did the Snake River. They mentioned that they were going to open up um, a trip on the Salmon River, so we decided, hey, you know, let's go ahead and do that. And interestingly, um, the first trip on the Snake it was um, a three-day trip, two nights, three days. And just as you're getting into the groove and you're getting accustomed to certain things, um, you know, the trip is already is over. So we did three nights and four days on the Salmon. Well, how, it, how long was the first one that was frustrating that way? It was two nights, three days. Yeah, you got to go four or five days. I, yeah. It took me two days to get into the groove myself. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, what company were you? did you end up going with then, Jane? Hell's Canyon Raft. It really is that kind of quality living on the river. These guys, good guides, and also good food. Oh, it's Unbelievable. I and mean, it's, it's not just because you've been food. working all day and you're hungry. It is. It'd be good food right here. Uh, I'll tell you. You know, you think that. Oh wow, these guides. What a gr- what a great deal they have. You know, during the summer, just going down the river and guiding. They work their rears off. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of hard work. And they, they got to be good with people. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and that's one reason why we uh, returned to this particular uh, company. Hey, let me uh, ask you. What about bathrooms and stuff like that? Um, we were told we sort of had the Cadillac of, um, oh, I forget what they call them. Um, well, I guess of little outhouse, uh. Oh, the Cadillac of outhouses. Yeah. Describe I mean, it. 
you know, they, they, they set it away from, from the camp a little bit. And, you know, there are certain rules, you know, in using it. But, I mean, it's fine. I mean, I, I had no problem with that. How about I mean, environmental sensitivity out there? Were they, uh... Oh, it's, it's leave no trace. Yeah. Totally leave no yeah. trace. And they disp- I mean, they carry it when we would um, pack up for, you know, that day's trip. They would pack that up to you and carry it with them and dispose of it, you know, so you have a fancy you have a fancy little um, environmentally sensitive outhouse that gets set up outside of camp. Mm-hmm. What about showers? Um, we Probably don't need to. You're in the river all the time. Well, yeah, yeah, but you know you have this sun. You've got the suntan lotion. You get kind of greasy and yucky. Um, they do provide sort of a kind of kind of a shower. I mean, and on I didn't use it really much on snake, but for the salmon one we did. We were, I guess we were a better able to operate at this time. Um, but, you know, part, part, of, part of the fun of this is just living out, you know, just living outdoors and not caring what you look like and, mm-hmm. and just having a good time. Yeah, I mean, like, like Jane said, um, river rafting has really, in my mind, been the, the original eco-trip. I mean, we've mm-hmm. been carrying out human waste for over 20 years. We leave our camps as if we've never been there. We take the ashes from our fire pans, uh, everything with us. So we, uh, we actually set up a small tent around our toilet, and uh, we like to say that it, it's just like yours at home, except it doesn't flush. <laughs> okay. And and just from your own interest, you're going to come back to this campground next week with another group, probably. Right. And if you leave uh, food around, you're going to have bees and all sorts of bug problems, aren't you? Sure, sure. There's a lot of motivation uh, for our own reasons to keep things clean. How long? Have you, yeah. How long have you been using a particular favorite beach for oh, a campground? Oh, some of them. I mean, ever since we've been running the rivers, two uh, decades. Huh? Yeah, two decades or more. <laughs> wow. And do you have favorite beaches? And and is it just like first come first serve for these different? Let's say this uh, James Company's coming down there, Hell's Canyon, and we got River Odyssey West. Are y'all shooting for the best campgrounds? Usually, we talk to each other. We try to be cooperative. Um, we we say, hey, I've got twenty people, you've got ten. We both want to be in this particular area, so we'll negotiate and we'll try to find a, a beach that works for everybody. There's plenty of camps out there. Mm-hmm. Some rivers that are um, have a little bit higher level of use, more pressure, uh, actually have assigned campsite systems uh-huh. where when we leave, for example, on the Middle Fork of the Salmon where we do a six-day trip, when we leave, uh, we know where we'll be camping every night. Okay, so that's booked out almost like hotels with a tour group. Yeah. That may be a stretch. <laughs> but you, you know who's on the river at, at a given time? Do, do you communicate with cell phones between different companies? No, it's more casual than that. It's it's We're at the put-in, inflating our rafts. We talk to whoever else is there. We see people float by. We say, how many days are you going for? And yeah. Hey, Jane, did you ever have any uh, real scary scouts of uh, whitewater? Um, the, the snake had had more whitewater. Um, salmon, I, I found, had had less, but some of them were, were was pretty treacherous. And I can't remember. I did a I did a kayak run um, on one stretch, and I mean, our guides, you know, instructed us to stay close close to the edge, not to get into the middle, because that's where they, uh, you know, the um, the fast turning white water was. And I, I wound up getting stuck on a rock, but you know, you just with your oar, you just or your paddle. You just ease yourself off the rock. I mean, but it right. was... Well, that's a, a skill they, they teach you, I guess. Jane, you traveled all the way from Texas to Idaho for these uh, trips twice in a row. Do you figure the best rafting you found was in the Northwest? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, again, I hadn't done this for a really long time. I have done... Um, I did, like, a day trip in um, Tennessee years ago. Um, but this was really the first long, long type of trip, uh, multiple-day trip I've taken. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jane, for your call, and and happy rafting. Thank you. Bye now. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. I'm talking with Peter Grubb, and he, uh, 25 years ago, founded a company called River Odysseys West. Hey, Peter, what is the world's most exciting river or some of the most exciting rivers to raft, and what's your most, you know, you're like a hardcore river rafter. What's been your best experience outside of Idaho if you just really get exotic and hard-hitting? Well, there's a few rivers that stand out, um, the Zambezi in Africa is one. Uh, we actually raft a river in Ecuador called the Rio Upano. It's on the Amazon basin. In Chile, there's a river right now that's gotten quite famous, the Fulafu. Why would it be famous? Uh, it's, it's famous because it's got great white water. It's beautiful scenery. 
it's gotten a lot of press. I mean, how long of a trip would that be? Uh, people offer anything from a couple days up to four or five days. So if you want to mix some international uh, experience in with your rafting, you can do that and um, and still have a well-run trip and good, comfortable com- uh, food and camping. Yeah, there's all different level of uh, I would say. Uh, comfortable styles to expeditionary styles uh, around the world. And, and anymore, there's a whitewater rafting on every continent. Expeditionary styles, that's where you don't get your coffee in bed. Yeah, that's right. And that might mean even um, uh, portaging, where you, where oh, you, yeah. you reach a, a waterfall or a rough rapid that's too difficult to run, and you have to carry everything around it. Do you ever get somebody that just freaks out when you take them up to that viewpoint and look at that river, that rapid, and they say, I'm not going to do that? We have. What do you do? Well, uh, depending on the situation, in most cases, we have the option of walking around. While we want to challenge people and push their comfort levels to some degrees, we certainly are not outward bound. We're not trying to, to transform their life that way. And if they prefer to walk around a rapid, we'll, we'll provide that opportunity. Ann and I both flipped on one of your rapids, and it was a it was an unforgettable experience. And uh, for a few seconds, both of us were just like, Wow, this is it. But then, you know, you always blow right through the rapids and you find yourself floating, bobbing in the calm water downstream a bit. Yeah, and Jane Jane talked about a rapid being treacherous. And my experience is whenever you fall out of a rapid, all of a sudden it's a treacherous rapid. It becomes treacherous. <laughs> now, there's there's fake rivers or fake rafting in the east coast of the United States, aren't there? Or not uh, fake, but like channels? Yeah, or? well, there's been uh, whitewater rafting uh, or uh, whitewater courses that have been set up. Reno, Nevada has one. Um, there's one, I believe, in... Uh, in Virginia and Richmond, on the James River. Uh, whenever there's an Olympics, they build a fake river, essentially. Whitewater rafting is an Olympic sport now, isn't it? Uh, it's actually kayaking, whitewater kayaking. Oh, kayaking. Okay. Yeah, I guess that would make sense. Uh, one of the h- highlights for me was actually body surfing, or what do you call it? Just Swimming a li- rapid. Mm-hmm. In my life jacket. And, mm-hmm. the, and, the, and the guides give us coach, coaches on that, and anybody wants to jump off the boat and feet first, right? Feet first, and it's, up, a, it's a great confidence up. builder. I just loved it. Although, I was nervous about the sturgeons. <laughs> Tell us about the sturgeons and the wildlife. Well, sturgeon is a huge fish that's been around since prehistoric times, and uh, not much to worry about. They live on the bottom, and they don't have teeth. They're but pretty, how long are they? Well, they get big, 10, like, 12, 13 feet. 13-foot Loch Ness Monster in the bottom of the Snake River, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, a, I'm body surfing through it with my little tender white toes dangling down there. Yeah, you'd be moving too fast for them, though. Have <laughs> <laughs> you ever seen a sturgeon? Oh, sure. People yeah. people fish for sturgeon in Hell's Canyon and bring them up to the surface. They're a protected species, so oh. you can't pull them out of the water, but they're, they're impressive to see. We'll splash around some more with River Captain Peter Grubb, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Bet you going fishing all of the time. Baby going fishing, too. Bet you old life, your sweet wife. Catch more fish than you. Many fish bites if you got good bait. Here's a little tip that I would like to relate. Many fish bites if you got good bait. I'm a going fishing, yes, I'm going fishing, and my baby going fishing too. I went on down to my favorite fishing hole, baby, grabbed me a pole and line. Throw my pole on and caught a nine pound catfish. Now you know I brought him home for supper time. Proving any fish bites if you got good bait. Here's a little tip that I would like to relate. Many fish bites if you got good bait. I'm a going fishing, yes, I'm going fishing, and my baby going fishing too. We're communing with nature in the Rockies on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guide is backcountry river rafting expert Peter Grubb. Now, you've been going through these rivers, Peter, for 25 years with groups. How has it changed just from your point of view as a a river guide? Uh, Congestion, pollution, bugs, a different kind of clientele, campsites, and so on? First of all, I'd say environmentally, it's better than it was 20, 25 years ago. Outfitters have always sort of led the way on the minimum impact camping but the different agencies, whether it's Forest Service, Park Service, BLM, have required more and more of this carry-out um, care of the river. So that's improved. Um, the other thing that's changed is certainly trips have become more pampered. That's been a trend. Hmm. When I first started, our, our trips were very different than they are today. People brought their own dishes, washed their own dishes. N- now we have little tables and chairs to sit around. We set up the tents. People it, brought their own dishes on your first trips? In our first few years, yeah. yeah. The same happened with my tour company. Everybody is much more comfortable these days. Right. Our uh, first aid kit was just a baggie of Valium, you know. Let's get out there and have an adventure. If it's over your stress level, there it'll you be go. okay. <laughs> well, that's changed. And, and and people are wanting more participation also. We're, we're running many more paddle rafts on trips where everybody's paddling, more inflatable kayaks because people want 
that challenge. Oh, that's good. And you mentioned permits. Is that a, a complication for you? Is that, is that a big frustration for you on the river as, as somebody who's putting together all these tours? Well, per, the permit system was set up, started in the early 1970s on the more popular rivers in the United States, like the Grand Canyon, like the Middle Fork of the Salmon, the Rogue River in Oregon, uh, various other places where there were just getting to be too much pressure on the resource, and it needed the numbers of people needed to be limited. And so the various government agencies set up permit systems. And once a, a permit system is in place, there is a limited number of opportunities to float. So there'll only be, for example, in Hell's Canyon, there's 15 raft companies. Mm -hmm. And on any given day, there can be two uh, rafting outfitters launch, what we would call the outfitted uh, public opportunities. And then there's three permits that are issued for the do-it-yourselfer, the person that has their own raft and wants to go on their huh. own. So you're not going to have the congestion people are having when they climb. I mean, you hear these stories about climbing uh, Mount Fuji or Mount Everest or something like that where there's just lines of people. You don't really notice that, huh? There are rivers that are pretty crowded. They tend to be more uh, in near big metropolitan areas. Uh, in Idaho, you can say that crowding is really never an issue. Let's talk safety a bit. Um, you know, in Switzerland, they had a rash of deaths with adventure sports. Do people die in whitewater rafting trips? People do. It's very rare. Um, it's like everything. The, 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 the drownings you read about in the newspaper at home on rivers almost always involve alcohol and people not wearing life jackets or personal flotation devices. When you start talking about professionally guided whitewater rafting trips, uh, there's certainly a risk. There certainly are deaths from time to time around the country. Uh, they're typically in places with uh, where lots of people go rafting, um, so your odds are increased. But yeah. it's rare. It's still uh, it's well, still rare. Peter Ballpark, how many would you guess? I, I don't know if you know the statistic, but how many Americans would you think go on a river rafting trip that's that is at least overnight uh, every year? Overnight, maybe I don't know a hundred thousand. Okay, a couple so, hundred thousand. But when you start talking about day trips, yeah. then you push the million number. Right. I would think, to me, the overnight is really what makes it a, a vacation for me. It was just great to go for four or five days. What kind of emergency communications equipment do you take on board? Nowadays, we carry satellite telephones. In the old days, um, it was, uh, you know, how fast can you run to the nearest ranch or the nearest forest service station or something like that. That's right. With satellite communication, it's really you're just across the street from a telephone point of view. Right. Now, you got in the river, I was impressed by these hot rod boats, these rangers boats that could actually... These big metal speedboats that can go up the river and do they just bounce off the rocks and not mess up their propellers? What's the deal there? Well, what you're, what you're talking about are jet boats. Right. And jet boats are not on every river. They are in Hell's Canyon. Uh, they were actually invented in New Zealand. They came to this country in the early 1960s. They were originally used as work boats to, re to access remote ranches. Uh, nowadays, they're used for recreational opportunities to take people uh, up the river. They go 30, 35 miles an hour. No, they don't bounce off rocks. <laughs> you better miss the rocks. Was that right? Because, I, I mean, I grew up on boats, and you don't want to hit a rock, and I don't know how you could motor up a river without hitting a rock. Well, when they do, if That's I, a problem. we've seen them sink. <laughs> oh, that, but rangers can get around on these rivers in, in a way you might not even imagine. I mean, it's quite impressive. Yeah, on, on big rivers like Hell's Canyon. Now, you take a river like the Middle Fork of the Salmon or the Locksaw, which is a Class 4 river we run in central Idaho. That doesn't work. The, the power boats don't work at all. Okay. We, we actually... Um, try to take the mere proficiency of running a river trip to a different level. What we're really trying to do for people is help them connect to the resource. You mentioned that earlier. Uh, we, we, uh, we spend quite a bit of time and effort training our guides in cultural and natural history interpretation as well as techniques to help, uh, help them better explain the resource where we are so people have a better appreciation uh, and, and can make a personal connection and go home feeling like they've learned something and, and understand more about that environment that they just experienced. Yeah, and I was saying it's a break for me from museum going and cathedral hopping in Europe, but in actuality, when you get on the river, if you have a good guide who's interested in this, there's plenty of natural history and, um, and history, people history. There is. There's, there's the, the story of the geology of the canyon. There's, uh, on almost all the rivers we run, there's Indian rock art, so petroglyphs mm -hmm. and pictographs we can visit and learn about those native cultures. There's yeah. the wildlife. And your guides are, are um, enthusiastic about sharing that. Now, to me, the guide's life is quite romantic. I mean, there's ski bums in the winter and river raft pilots and guides in the summer. Is that the typical sort of arrangement? Are these people generally uh, free spirits that would be um, having that kind of nomadic, uh, fun-loving, uh, high-action high kind of lives? 
Yeah, we have people that certainly would fit that mold perfectly, but we have others that are school teachers nine months out of the year and come and raft guide for us in the summer. Hmm. We have some that uh, work construction. Uh, we do have some that just travel, follow the rivers. Somebody wants to get a job with you, is it difficult? It's uh, competitive. Uh -huh. we're, uh, we're a desirable company to work for because we run a lot of rivers, so there's a lot of variety. What does a good guide make in a day? Uh, between 80 and 130 $140 a day. $80 like to 140 that. a day. And uh, is, there, is the tips, is there a big part of river rafting that's tipping? That, that's a part of it. And that would be on top of that? Right. At the end. So you pay them 80 to 140 a day, and then they get their tips if, they're, if the group's liked them at the end of the trip. That's right. When you're shopping around, let's just um, uh, talk about just real basic economics. Uh, what does it cost per day to go on a high-end river trip like yours? I would say most high-end river trips nowadays are somewhere between 250 and $300 a day a person. 250 per day. So four-day trip, $1,000. Right. Generally, you, um, you stay at a hotel at one end of the trip. You all... Uh, drop in early in the morning, four days later, a bus meets you and drives you back to your original hotel? That's right. And in four days, how many miles would you be away from your original spot on, oh, a, on a drive, you know, hour drive back or something? Anywhere between an hour and three hours, I would say. We, we, we always try to do the majority of our driving at the beginning of the trip so that at the end it's, it's shorter. Do the groups bond on the river? I mean, is that a fun aspect of this? It is. And, uh, you know, I've been doing this a long time, actually 28 years now, and I've seen marriages made, marriages broke. I've seen lifelong friends formed. I've seen people solve family issues by connecting with various people on the river. Uh, we see people go on a rafting vacation with us one year, and the next thing I hear, I get a postcard, and they've gone to Europe together because they met another family or somebody that they, they did bond with. That's great. We've been talking with Peter Grubb who for 25 years has been running a company in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, based in Coeur d'Alene, called River Odysseys West. Their website, www.roadventures.com. Peter, it's great to talk to you, and you got me thinking about another river trip. Thanks, Rick. We'll hope to see you out there. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and right now we're staying in the United States, and we're visiting that corner of our country where everything comes together in right angles, the four corners. I've got with me the author of The Moon Handbook to the Four Corners, Julian Smith. Julian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So what's the deal, the four corners? Uh, it sounds kind of sterile to me. Actually, it's a fascinating place. It's not only the only place in the U.S. where four states come together, which is where it gets its name, but it's pretty much, I consider it the heart of the Southwest. It's really in the center of all of the desert and mountains and canyons that make the American Southwest such a special place. The heart of the Southwest, that's great. And I suppose it's a good trivia question. What are those four states that come together? They are Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado. All right. Now, uh, you've written a guidebook on the Four Corners. Do people go there for, I would imagine they go there for a mix of culture and nature? Yeah, I'd say probably the outdoors is a big draw, one of the biggest draws out here. There's over a dozen national parks and monuments just within a few days' drive of each other, everything from the Grand Canyon up to arches and canyonlands in Utah to Chaco Culture Historical Park in New Mexico, and also just the, you know, the feel, the culture of the place. It's, it really feels like you're out there in the Wild West with Monument Valley and you know, the days of the Westerns. So this striking, desolate southwest ambience with the slot canyons. Tell me about these slot canyons. Well, there's a lot of these um, all over the canyon land, the canyon country of southern Utah. Um, they're usually, they can get incredibly narrow, especially in places like the San Rafael Reef or uh, the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. There's hikes that you can go on for a couple miles long down a little slot canyon where they'll get so narrow that you actually have to take off your backpack and squeeze through sideways. It's definitely not for people who are claustrophobic. Wow. And do they just keep getting, do they open up then to, into, into bigger valleys? Yeah, they start wide, get narrow, get wide again. Um, there's a whole variety. Some are flooded, some you have to climb in and out, but it's uh, a real adventure. Now, in your guidebook, you list good hikes, I suppose? Yes. All right. What about caves? I've heard there's some good caves down there. Yeah, the, the thing about the Four Corners is it's, it's kind of an offbeat place. It attracts a, a unique type of person, and I've noticed in my travels around there that a lot of people tend to end up in caves. There's a uh, there's a gas station in a cave near Hanksville, Utah. There's uh, an entire home called Hole in the Rock near Moab, which is a tourist attraction now. A guy blasted a home out of the sandstone. 
and there's uh, other museums. There's even a bed and breakfast near Farmington, New Mexico, that's uh, in a cave, Cocopelli's Cave, bed and breakfast. All right. Now, did some of the uh, the Indian culture is quite vivid there. Does that have anything to do with the caves? Does that uh, are there cave dwellings from the uh, you know native civilizations? Yeah, a lot of the uh, precursors to today's tribes actually lived in the canyons and in these caves. Um, a lot of people know them as the Anasazi culture, five six hundred years ago. So in places like Mesa Verde National Park, uh, you can go and look down and see these incredible. They look like entire apartment blocks made out of sandstone in these caves that you you can't even imagine how they even got there, much less built the town inside. Wow. This is Rick Steves and Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Julian Smith. He's the author of The Moon Handbook to the Four Corners. Julian, if you're interested in uh, in learning more about Native culture, you've got the Navajo, you've got the Hopi, Pueblo tribes. Uh, what are some good ways to to um, actually connect with these uh, these tribes and learn about their civilizations? Well, first of all, you've got to get where they live. So the Navajo and Hopi reservations are both in northeastern Arizona, uh, both very close to Flagstaff is kind of the gateway town. Tourists are welcome. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's a lot of trading posts around uh, where you can buy native jewelry or handmade rugs, kachina dolls. Uh, you can also go up to someplace like the Hopi villages, which are incredibly old villages on top of these really narrow mesas, actually in the middle of the Navajo reservation. Old meaning what? Old meaning possibly the oldest continually inhabited towns in the country, back to about 11, 1200 A.D. Is that right? Still today lived in? Yeah, they still are. Wow. If you time your visit right, you can actually show up in the middle of a ceremony where the, the public, they're open to the public. You can't take any photos or make any sketches, but you can see them doing these rain dances and other ceremonies that they've been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years. You mean it's not just a Kodak moment on stage like hula dancing for the tourists? Absolutely not. If they even see you with a camera, you'll be asked to leave. Why don't they want you to take uh, photographs? Because they, they consider it sacred knowledge, and they don't, want, they don't want to be exploited by people just coming in and snapping photos and leaving. They want, they actually, especially the Hopi, they consider anybody who's there, even if you're a tourist, you're actually part of the collective energy of the group. You're actually contributing just by being there. Wow. Yeah, they don't want you to take any of it home on it's, the camera. It's hard to imagine that there still is genuine traditional cultures living that have not been steamrolled by our modern McDonald's society. Yeah, it is. They, uh, they, of course, you know, they've adopted a few things. They, a lot of people drive around in spanking new trucks, and you'll see some satellite dishes on top of some of the homes, but a lot of their traditional beliefs have really been amazingly preserved. And as a tourist, you can go there, and if you're sensitive, you feel welcome? Yeah, you do, as long as you, you know, you don't poke your nose in where you're not, you know, you're not expected to be like a council mm-hmm. meeting or something like that. Uh, it's probably a polite mix of uh, voyeurism and commerce. I mean, they'll let you poke around if you're, if you're cool and you're going to buy some of their handicrafts and so on. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. All right. Tell me more about these trading posts. They sound fascinating. Yeah, these are the kind of places that you see in the old John Wayne Westerns where the cowboy will come in and order some tobacco and coffee and the Indians will be in the back bargaining for how much they can get for the rugs that they just wove. But a lot of these are actually still in existence. And one of my favorite things about this place, and it's just interesting to see, see how they've evolved with the times. Some of them have turned into gas stations. Hmm. Some of them have been preserved as museums. And a select few are actually pretty authentic still. You can walk in and you can get yourself an ice cream cone. You can get yourself a hose clamp. You can get a woven basket all at the same place, just like they did 100 years ago. And if they say it costs two bucks, you can give them two buckskins and they might take it? Yeah, I don't know. You can try. All right. Fascinating. What about the basic drive? If you're going to take a road trip around there, what's your advice? Well, you probably want to start at one of the gateway towns, which is something like uh, Moab, Utah, Durango, Colorado, or Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, You can even start in Santa Fe or Albuquerque, New Mexico, if you want. You probably want to give yourself a week or two at least. You want to have your own car, so if you don't live around here, you have to rent one. And be prepared for some long drives, but some incredible scenery like no place you've ever seen on Earth. What's the best time of year to go from a scenery point of view? I'd say spring and fall. It can get a little hot in the summer. Right. You know, it can get up into the 90s and 100s in some places, but uh, spring and fall are just beautiful. And Julian, you've got a website. It's basically your name.com, juliansmith.com. Yeah, it lists a lot of uh, links to my books and my articles, and actually got a lot of photography from the Four Corners that are up there, and people can send me questions through the website if they like. Great. Julian also writes the Moon Guidebook to Ecuador and Virginia. You can learn a lot more about all those places at his website, juliansmith.com. Julian, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a great time. Okay, bye now.
Besides writing a traveler's haiku, another way you can be recognized in our 15 Seconds of Fame department at Travel with Rick Steves is to write a brief essay about the place where you live in a way that might encourage others to want to visit there. Here's a submission from Catherine Proulx of Montreal, Quebec, in which she describes the attraction of her city neighborhood. When tourists visit Montreal, they generally stick to the south end of the city, the old port, the very hip plateau area, the eclectic St. Catherine Street, and the Mont Royal. These are excellent places to see, but a visit to Montreal cannot be complete without a glimpse of the non-touristy Montreal, the one where people actually live, shop, work, and go to school. And Côte des Neiges, my favorite neighborhood, just fits the bill. This area is located around the metro station of the same name and is well known for its Oratoire Saint-Joseph, a gorgeous 20th century basilica which is an important pilgrimage place for sick or handicapped people. It's also home to Université de Montréal, one of the two French-speaking universities of the city, and a good place for architecture enthusiasts. You can also enjoy the non-touristy half of Mont-Royal at the Notre-Dame-des-Neiges Cemetery. But most of all, Côte des Neiges is known for its incredible cultural diversity. People from all over the world cohabit peacefully here, and it's the very best place for authentic food from all over the world. A stroll down this snowy slope, preferably late in the afternoon on any weekday, will let you enjoy the fun and cheap eateries, the trendy boutiques, the many cafes, of which Brûlerie Saint-Denis is my favorite, and one of the best people sighting spots in Montreal. This is where I live, from Catherine Proulx of Montreal. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. That's where you can look up information on today's program and listen again to this and other editions of the program, including a link to podcast versions of Travel with Rick Steves. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of the show. And send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. Details are at ricksteves.com. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Robin Goddard, Sonia Grosset, Rachel Unk, and Robin Stencil, with technical support from John Weist and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.